Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. This week on the podcast, I have an extra special guest, Tina Vandersteel. She heads the entire emerging country debt team over at GMO, located in Boston, the venerable investing firm uh, that's head by Jeremy Grantham. He's the G in GMO. Uh, myself and Vandersteel talk about everything from the risks involved in EM investing, how you can hedge, whether or not you should be investing in the local currency or in dollar denominated in debt. This is really a, a deep dive into a fascinating and underfollowed sector of the marketplace. It's trillions and trillions of dollars. Uh, and yet, most of us are fairly unfamiliar with what goes on uh, in EM. And, and really, Tina gives us a, uh, a master class in what you should be looking for and how you should be thinking about the risks and potential rewards uh, in EM. I, I really enjoyed the conversation, and I think you will also. So with no further ado, my interview with GMO's Tina Vandersteel. This is Masters in Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio. My extra special guest this week is Tina Vandersteel. She is the head of the Emerging Country Debt Team at GMO, where she is also a partner. She joined the firm in 2004, coming from J.P. Morgan's Fixed Income Research, where she developed quantitative arbitrage strategies for emerging market debt and high-yield bonds, Tina Vandersteel, welcome to Bloomberg. Thank you. So so let's talk a little bit about your background, which kind of surprises me. You, you graduate Washington and Lee University, not only with a BA in economics, but a BA in journalism. How do you go from journalism to emerging market debt? Well, that one is an easy one. Um, my dad set my expectations early in life that he would pay for uh, my existence through undergraduate or 21 years old, whichever came first. So I graduated at 20, and I figured that a path in economics had higher lifetime earnings potential, and I wanted to live in New York City, so um, I chose that path. Uh, of course, at the time, if you think about emerging debt, this is 1990, so the fall of communism. We had just finished an economic studying Nanker Olson's uh, famous comparative economic systems, so now is here a chance to really get to know some of the countries that we had been studying. And my economics professors had said, listen, you get kind of a free MBA if you join any of the Wall Street banks and go through their training program. And free sounded like a good thing. Uh, so I applied to a couple of them, to Goldman and J.P. Morgan, and landed a job with both. But uh, my dad convinced me I should definitely take the J.P. Morgan job the lesser earnings notwithstanding, he said the culture will would be more of a fit for somebody like me. And so that's how I got there. Hmm, quite quite interesting. You spent two years working at J.P. Morgan's San Paolo office in the mid-90s. That had to be a fascinating experience. Tell us a little bit about that. What did you learn from your time in Sao Paulo? 
Oh, Sao Paulo was amazing. I mean, if I had been the kind of journalist that Michael Lewis was, I would have written a whole book <laughs> just about that experience. I mean, if you think about it, it's 1995, so Plano Real, so Fernando Henrique Cardoso is elected president. He introduces Plano Real, which he had devised when he was finance minister. It ended hyperinflation, introduced the new currency that is still the currency to this day, which is quite an achievement for Brazil. Um, and as a, an employee of J.P. Morgan, they gave you just a crazy amount of power. So I'm in my mid-20s. Uh, my job at the time, my, my name job was to be a strategist, which I didn't really know what a strategist was. But apparently what it meant was I would take my little vice president card and I would travel up to Brasilia and I would get to know the congressmen because this was during the whole constitutional reform effort, which is actually still ongoing today. Um, and all of the votes that went on in Congress were super important to the future of the country. So I would get to know the congressmen figure out which way the vote was going to go, fly back to Sao Paulo, get on the hoot and holler, tell J.P. Morgan's worldwide clients how that was going to go. And at the time, I guess that was really the origins of sales color, which is something I don't read these days. But at the time, I guess I was in, in charge of producing sales color, which I think <laughs> is pretty funny. That's really quite interesting. The Today, San Paolo is something like 12 million people. It's one of the world's most populous cities. And it's now uh, Brazil's vibrant financial center. Was it clear in 95 that this was going to be a financial powerhouse, this location? Well, it's been several locations actually since then. Um, at the time that I moved there, the center was actually in Centro, like the actual center of the city but had already moved to Avenida Paulista. And since I moved, has now moved to a new section of Sao Paulo called Saria Lima. And I think it was pretty clear. If you got to know any of the Brazilians at that time, many of them are very famous even today, for Armenio Fraga and a whole bunch of people. They were, they're very, very smart people. If you think about how crazy hyperinflation is and the uncertainties sure. of investing in hyperinflation... These people were crack. I mean, the, the, to give you a sense, if I wrote a check in Sao Paulo, it cleared the next day, where back in the U.S., it would be several days. And that was because, you know, inflation was very high. And uh, some people are probably aware that Brazil has a very unusual interest rate compounding system. So whereas we here in the U.S. use simple interest because inflation and interest rates are low, in Brazil they use daily compounded interest wow. because their history is that inflation is very high. So there's a very sophisticated financial system there. I'm not surprised at all. Really interesting. So how did the experience living abroad, working abroad, affect how you view the world of emerging market debt and, you know, what were the big takeaways for you? Well, one thing I can say, and I've only lived in Brazil as an emerging market, is that the locals are the most pessimistic. And huh. I've often wondered, why is that the case? And I have a theory, and the theory is part of my journalism background, which is, I remember back in journalism school, we used to say, if it bleeds, it leads. Sure. Or fire, rape, incest, film at 11, right? Okay. So whatever was the most tragic, the most awful thing, that was what you were going to learn about. Now, this is the 1990s, so we don't have internet yet, but there is a very vibrant 
press in Brazil. There were five daily newspapers worth reading. There were two weekly magazines that were also worth reading. And of course, they only brought you the most pessimistic version of anything that was happening. Cardoso, he was going to fail and inflation was going to come back. It was just this constant parade of bad news. That may sound familiar. (laughs) That's true everywhere, right? The internet makes it worse, but it's true everywhere. And the only exception that I found to that is briefly, we had a fellow who worked for us who eventually, he was Chinese, and he eventually moved back to China, unfortunately, so we didn't, so he had to move on. But he was super optimistic about China. And I thought to myself, well, maybe that's related to the fact that press freedom in China is poor. (laughs) In other words, maybe folks are pessimistic because of what they read. Schools don't really teach us anything about information hygiene or how to evaluate what you see, unless you go to law school where they teach you how to, you know, cross-examine a witness and look at all their motivations and biases, etc. Most people don't don't approach media that way. So that's really fascinating about um, not just EM, but media in general. So spending time abroad, has this led you to sort of discount the terrible media stories you might see about, be it Argentina or Venezuela or Brazil or or not even just South America. If you look at Africa and parts of Asia, there's a constant drumbeat of terrible news coming out of places like that. Yes, I definitely discount it. There's a a wonderful article um, by Michael Crichton called Why Speculate? And in it, it uh, talks about this idea, and he's probably not the only person who's thought about this or talked about this idea of gel man amnesia. So imagine that you're an expert in your field and you open up today's newspaper, whatever it is, you read something online, and you realize that what's being written there is completely false. Absolutely. You, You know firsthand that what's written there is just wrong. And then you turn the paper, you turn the page, and you read the next article, and you've completely forgotten what you just experienced, right? So the next article is about something you don't really know anything about, and you just trust the source. Hmm. So I took away from that article that, you know what, it's very rare, especially if you think about news. News is happening real time, and what's the old adage? We don't even know the the genesis of the French Revolution. So how could you expect that anybody in real time has the correct interpretation about anything? So you're better off, I think, just not reading most things. Huh. The, the first draft of history, so to speak. The first draft of history, that's right. Huh. Which really, is different really... than financial markets, where you get a price, and the price has a lot of information content in it. So you don't really need to, to hear about market color or interpretations. You just have to witness the price. I'm, I'm intrigued. So let's talk uh, about a place like Venezuela. How do you manage the risks of investing in a space like that when it's pretty clear you can't rely on the media? Uh, is it just a matter of boots on the ground and, and seeing what's going on firsthand? How do you um, come up with some sort of investment thesis and then try and verify it? Well, I would say in the the way we invest and the way we approach emerging debt markets, we try to de-emphasize needing to know anything about the country. So my background is in relative value analysis and arbitrage analysis, and it's kind of a, a widget way of looking at things. It's it's 
independent of whatever the country is or the company is or whatever that is. And what's nice about it is, is imagining that the same risk is priced differently in two markets and trying to arbitrage that difference of opinions for that same risk. That's a lucky thing to be able to do because otherwise you would have to have some knowledge or be able to come up with an opinion about places like Venezuela. And I would say that's very, very, very hard to do. I mean, Venezuela is a, a, an interesting case insofar as they did something that no other country has ever done. And what I mean by that is we work in default-sensitive markets, right? Sure. Every year we get a default or two. And usually the way that works out is the classic Hemingway way, which is how did you go <laughs> bankrupt gradually and then suddenly, right? right. People refuse to roll over your debt at reasonable prices, and then you either go to the IMF or you default or whatever it is. Venezuela ran out of money in 2014 and continued to pull oil out of the ground and starve its population to pay foreign creditors for four more years. Crazy. Crazy. So, you know, could we have predicted that they would have done that? Of course not. I don't think anyone would have predicted anyone would do something so insane. So let me ask you an obvious question I probably should have asked you earlier, and that's simply... What do we mean by emerging market? What, what makes a particular country an emerging market um, versus a, a, a frontier market or a developed market? Ah, so taxonomy. It varies. So we distinguish between emerging countries and mm -hmm. emerging markets. So classically, the, the definition of emerging countries, which includes frontier countries, are those countries that are either low or middle income countries and therefore may run out of the money to pay you back or have defaulted in the past and have demonstrated that they are willing to default on you. So those are, those are what we refer to as emerging countries. Emerging markets has much to, more to do with the accessibility by foreigners into a market. So can you access the local market um, what are the tax implications of being a foreigner in the local market? So, for example, you might have a, a Ghanaian bond in dollars, which is from an emerging country, but it clears in Euroclear, so it's a developed market emerging country bond, as opposed to its local currency bonds, which are emerging country emerging market bonds. Does that make sense? Sure. And this is whether or not it's corporate debt, government debt, they can all be out of an emerging country. There's no distinction other than the specific corporate risk for any given company if you're buying EM private debt as opposed to EM public debt. Is that a fair statement? That is a fair statement. The way we think about corporate debt within EM is that the sovereigns are the very powerful agent. It doesn't matter if you're emerging or developed. The mm -hmm. sovereigns are the powerful agent. And so the corporates are really a compound risk with respect to their sovereigns. So a corporate in the U.S. with rule of law and all of that and transparency is not that risky. But a corporate in Ghana, where you know the assets are in Ghana, subject to Ghana law, it doesn't matter if the bond is a U.S. law bond, 
in you know UK or in the US, the assets are still in Ghana. So we think of them as a compound risk. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So I want to ask you about a piece you wrote in 2012 titled The What, Why, When, and How Guide to Owning Emerging Country Debt. Uh, What motivated that piece and and how was it received by uh, various investors? Sure. Um, I think every asset manager eventually has to produce something along these lines that asks, why emerging debt? Like, what's the purpose of this thing? And so this was our shelf piece to describe to a hypothetical allocator what they should be on the lookout for. And I would say GMO takes a very, very standard traditional approach to thinking about an allocator's problem. If for no other reason than GMO is most famous for its asset allocation division, uh, headed by Ben Inker and founded by Jeremy Grantham. Sure. So what do they care about? They care about value, diversification, and alpha. And so we describe in the paper, well, how do you determine if something represents value? Right? How do you think about the spread you earn on a sovereign relative to losses you might experience or on a corporate? Or how do you think about currency risk in local currency denominated debt? So that's the value section. Diversification is how do these sub-asset classes present with respect to developed markets? Uh, you know, if, if you think about a portfolio optimization, how does this new asset play with respect to your existing assets? And then finally, alpha, which is the most fun space. Um, the alpha in this asset class is very high. The median manager beats the benchmark. So um, it's a super inefficient asset class, and that's one of the reasons that we really like it. Huh. Interesting. So so this leads me to the obvious question. How does GMO approach emerging market debt, say U.S. corporate debt or U.S. distressed debt, and how does that differ from some of your competitors? Well, I would say that GMO takes a very unusual approach. And I knew that when I worked at J.P. Morgan because, as I think I said earlier, I did relative value arbitrage. And so as a strategist, you know, the salespeople want to take you around and visit clients. And after a while, they realized that the big asset managers weren't interested in hearing my spiel if for no other reason than they were so big that the, you know, 10 by 10 million trade that I proposed was rounding error for them. <laughs> so the only people who were really interested in this were GMO and a small set of uh, hedge funds among them long-term capital, which is its own interesting, fascinating story. To say the least. Um, 
And now that I work at GMO, I find how unusual it is because people approach us and say, wow, what you've just described is totally different than what other people describe. And so what is it that we do differently? It's really this emphasis on relative value. So trying to find cheap securities, thinking about it from a long, short perspective, and emphasizing that rather than emphasizing what most managers emphasize, which is the fun stuff to talk about, right? The what do we think about Venezuela, to your earlier point, or what do we think about Brazil, or what do we think about the Fed, or any of these other very, very challenging questions to to ask and answer. And it's not that we don't try, by the way. We have some extremely experienced people thinking about those questions, but we all collectively agree that if you can find an arbitrage, you should put all your alpha chips there first and then worry about the rest later. Which leads to an obvious question. You spent some time developing strategies uh, using quant arb. Um, do we really care what someone's opinion is on something? Like it seems that the work you did um, on the quant side was pretty empirical versus the, hey, give me your squishy gut reaction to what's going on there. In other words, when, when people are asking for that color commentary, what is it? What's the value of that other than, you know, making casual chit-chat? Well, from an investment perspective, the value is generally low, right? I mean, we can mm -hmm. all sit around and have opinions about things. Right. But are you going to buy or sell something based on those opinions in the presence of, by the way, very high transactions costs? The, the weighted average price bid offer of bonds in my market is 75 basis points. Wow. Right? These aren't treasuries. So you better have a real sharp view, and you better hope that that view obtains for some period of time, because otherwise you're going to cross that bid offer twice. So we really try to avoid that. I think we are not only the lowest turnover manager of any of the active managers, our turnover is lower than the ETF. Wow. So we buy and hold arbitrage-like positions. 75 bips in and out. That That's some VIG um, just, just for the spread. Uh, let's talk about another spread that's out there. So so you, you joined GMO in 04 and then worked on a strategy in 06 that was the emerging market FX total return strategy. Tell us about that. What are the local currency debt strategies like in, in that develop out of that? And, and what are the currency spreads like? So local currency debt investing is a really fascinating one. It's, I'd say, the largest bundle of risks that we analyze. So when we think about positioning, it's always with respect to, well, what risk are we addressing? And it's any collection of credit risk, right? All of them have sovereign credit risk embedded. Within that, there's the question of selective sovereign default. So a sovereign can choose, okay, I'm in a corner, I'm only going to default on my foreign currency debt, or I'm only going to default on my local currency debt, or I'm going to default on them all. And we've seen examples of both. In fact, our sovereign analyst just went to a fascinating conference at Georgetown this week about the possibility of selective domestic debt default. It's a whole mm -hmm. very interesting topic. Um, on top of that, if it's a corporate, it can have idiosyncratic corporate risk. And if it's a local currency bond, then it has interest rate risk, and up to two types of currency risk. 
So currency volatility risk, that's the one you see crawl across your Bloomberg screen. But currency convertibility risk is a very serious one. What if I take my my foreign investors' dollars or euros or, or Swiss francs and I convert them into Argentine pesos, to take a recent example, and then Argentina says, I'm sorry, you can't get them out at the official rate. You have to go to the parallel rate. And that's 100% depreciated from the official rate. So these are serious risks. And we price each one of them independently. And we take and hedge the risks that we don't think are priced appropriately. How do you hedge a risk like that? Is it just purely currency hedging? Or are there default hedges and, and other such insurance or derivative products? Uh, there is one of each flavor. And believe you me... We make sure the documentation for whatever we're hedging is airtight with respect to whatever we're trying to hedge. So to, to take a, an interesting example from the 90s, actually, when Russia defaulted and devalued the ruble, those who had hedged their ruble exposure in Chicago found out that that hedge was worthless because it was a non-deliverable currency and the Russians could just manipulate that market independent of the actual ruble spot exchange rate. So we are very careful to make sure whatever asset we own, however the fixing mechanism is for that, lines up with our hedge. We don't want to have any basis risks. So when you say non-deliverable, that entire hedge was just a complete waste of, of capital and failed it to was. do... It, it just did nothing. What Was that, I, I recall the long-term capital management blow up, and I always thought of it as a problem that was based on leverage. Did hed, hedging, and I know I'm asking you this out of left field, but was hedging a factor in the Russian default for an entity like LTCM? I don't know if ruble was part of their problem. Leverage was certainly part of their problem. And yeah, what's what's a hundred to one on uh, amongst friends, right? <laughs> well, here is how I experienced it. So I'm a you know twenty something year old kid producing these relative value analytics, which is a lot of math, but not a lot of practical experience, right? I'm just a Wall Street strategist, and the salesperson who covered GMO also covered long term capital. And he would say, oh, I need a trade sheet for this pairs trade that you're recommending. And I'm like, okay, well, who's it for? And the choice there was how it was going to be levered. And GMO used very conservative leverage because we cared about, well, they cared, now I care about default risk. And long-term capital would use a lot of leverage because they were trying to hedge market risk, right? And that simple choice turned out to be fatal for one and not the other. And so it was a, that was what led me to be interested in GMO. I thought, wow, gosh, these guys are smarter than those Nobel laureates, you know, the very simplistic 20-year-old view of the thing. That's but really interesting, although, although I don't think you need a Nobel Prize to know that 100 to 1 leverage probably isn't a great idea or is probably, you know, the, the concern about, about tail risk, if it hedges market risk 99% of the time, but but that 1%, you don't make the curve and smash into the wall, doesn't really work, does it? Apparently, it doesn't. <laughs> Before we get into the details of, of some of the currency issues, I have to ask, 
How big is the opportunity in EM bonds? How, how large is this market? I don't know, compared to, let's say, U.S. corporates or treasuries? So round numbers for dollar-denominated bonds, uh, sovereign and quasi-sovereign external debt in the MB Global Index is around $1.4 trillion. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the corporate EM index, MB, it's also around $1.4 trillion. And for local currency EM debt, it's around $2.5 trillion. Mm-hmm. Now, that's just the the index eligible stuff, I think you could safely multiply that by another 50% to capture all possible investable debt. Has this been expanding? Because what what we seem to have seen over the past, I don't know, decade or two is really a bit of a shortage of of high quality sovereign debt. What's the growth rate of, of emerging market debt look like? So from memory, I would say each of these were probably about half again this size or half the size maybe 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's growing. Um, for sure, there's more interest in it. I was looking this morning at the Bloomberg Global Aggregate uh, Index, and they produced the sub-index of negative yielding debt. That's about $14 trillion. So folks are axed to find things with positive yields, and I think that's uh, where EM debt has been coming in. Huh, quite interesting. So we started talking a little bit about the spread in EM debt and some of the currency risk. How do you measure different currencies? You know, are the I know about the textbook models, but what's it like in the real world? It's funny that you say the textbook models. I gave a talk. We have a, a fall client conference. And in 2016, I wanted to give a talk about arbitrage. And that is an extremely dry topic, especially at a firm where, you know, plausibly I'm following Jeremy Grantham himself on, on the stage. So now you, know, you have a bunch of people interested in equities and asset allocation. I'm going to try and get them to be really interested on Japanese cross-currency basis and this kind of idea. And I started off with a quote because at this point, it was just around the time that Japan was entering yield curve control. And the quote that struck me was from 2013. I remember going to the IMF meeting, so ostensibly just to think about EM. But if you think about the time period, the European sovereign debt crisis is, is sort of coming to a denouement and, um, you know, the Cypriots had just defaulted on bank debt. So there's a lot of interesting stuff going on. And the most crowded room at that IMF in 2013 was the Bank of Japan. Huh. So the assistant governor, this fellow MoMA, says, stakes are high. If we fail, economics textbooks might be wrong. That's uncertainty. And I could never forget that quote because I thought to myself, well, gosh, it seems like economics textbooks have been wrong for some time now. But what I'm interested in is the fact that the finance textbooks are also wrong. Right. And um, Olivier Blanchard gave a talk called How to Teach Intermediate Macroeconomics After the Crisis. This is after the great financial crisis. And he says, I used to derive movements of exchange rates from uncovered interest rate parity conditions. And that was precisely the the point of my talk. It used to be that you could look at interest rate differentials and price currency forwards in developed markets, right? Not always in emerging markets, especially in non-deliverable emerging markets. 
But by this point in 2012, and for sure in 2016, developed markets were no longer following this, right? There were huge cross-currency bases going on, only eventually capped by the growing use of central bank swap lines, right? And lately, repo lines in the case of, say, the um, People's Republic of China. So um, I would say finance and macroeconomic textbooks are actually not all that useful these days because what you would have learned hardly applies anymore. And there's an argument to be made that the same is true across all the various chapters in that those economic books, except for the most um, recent updates that, that they seem to be catching up a little bit. So let's talk about how you hedge in the real world some of the currency risk you're taking and can you do that at reasonable prices? If you want to invest as a U.S. investor in Brazil or or in a place like Thailand, how can you do that without assuming too much currency risk? Well, you have a number of choices. You can, if you're a dollar-based investor, you can simply buy dollar Brazilian bonds. Right? There aren't that many dollar Thai bonds, but you can buy dollar bonds. You can buy local currency denominated bonds and hedge the currency risk associated with those bonds. Um, and, you know, to take a recent example, we found this fascinating Brazilian real denominated uh, instrument. It's actually guaranteed by you and me, the U.S. taxpayer. Really? Um, and it was paying local Brazilian treasury, so NTN plus 40 basis points. So you could hedge out the currency risk and the interest rate risk of that thing and be left with a U.S. guaranteed thing at sort of treasuries plus 100. Huh. That's a great bond. <laughs> so so here's the question that I'm kind of intrigued by. How do you determine whether to invest in the local currency or dollar-based if you're here in the U.S.? Are there specific advantages and disadvantages, or does all the currency risk essentially wash out at the end? So this is a very, very difficult question. As an arbitrage-focused person, when I think about naked currency risk, it's so far away from an arbitrage, I, of course, lean on my team, who are much smarter than I am in these dimensions. So we we bucket the emerging currencies in two different buckets. One is our floating rate currencies. And the investment thesis there is the broad dollar goes up and down and takes all of them up and down with it, right? So we're going to pick relative winners and losers among that pack of floating rate currencies. And that way we insulate ourselves from broad dollar moves. So it's a relative value program. For the very highly managed and pegged currencies, we have a program that um, uh, one of the people on my team developed, which tries to answer the question, given the ambient fundamentals of this particular country in terms of its balance of payments, its place in the economic cycle, and so forth, what's the likelihood that we'll get to keep whatever the ex-ante carry of the currency is? And so, you know, if this is a pegged currency, we were looking most recently at the Uzbek Som. And that currency is more managed against the Russian ruble than against the dollar per se, but it has very high yields, 10, 12%. And so the question is, is 
is that high enough or will we see a devaluation in the SOM that would wipe out that ex-ante carry? So that's how we think about the problem. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So, let's talk a little bit about the state of EM investing today. So, looking at this from an equity market perspective, I look at what took place in China and the change in the government and the change in attitudes towards companies like Alibaba kind of makes me look at the country, at least now, and say they appear to be uh, frightening from an equity perspective. I would be reluctant to put capital at risk there. How, what do you make of the geopolitical worlds and the various risks they present? Are there certain countries that hey, there's no respect for the rule of law or sanctity of contract and, or private property for that matter. And therefore, regardless of the potential upside in the debt instruments, we just don't believe that any money is safe there because of that. It's a good question. And I would say for the fundamental credit analysts who we have on the team, we rely a lot on precedent, frankly. Mm-hmm. So I'll take uh, an example from a few years ago in, well, first, I guess, in 2014 in Kazakhstan and then later, a few years later in, in Azerbaijan, where we weren't involved in the Kazakh one. Um, there was a, a big bank in Kazakhstan, and I, I actually don't know the name of it, but the ticker was BTAS. And over the course of a weekend, they rewrote their bankruptcy laws and basically wiped out the bank creditors. Huh. And so you you look at that and you say, gosh, that's a serious risk that you know we should take into account. We, I said we weren't involved because the the risk premium that you were being paid over Kazakhstan wasn't enough to even contemplate such a thing at the time. In that case, they went on to have quite a lot of debt relief for the country. So this is 2014 after that oil market collapse, and so oil-sensitive countries like Kazakhstan needed debt relief and so forth. You fast forward to uh, Azerbaijan, and there was a fascinating case that we were involved in. We owned some bonds from this bank called the International Bank of Azerbaijan. It was 90-something percent government-owned, so we considered it a state-owned enterprise that followed that same playbook. Over the weekend, they wrote, rewrote their bankruptcy laws and so forth, and they they gave a very mild haircut to creditors. It actually was more or less NPV neutral. Right. So they got all the reputational hit of doing this, but they got none of the debt relief that Kazakhs filed that under a head-scratcher. Why on earth would they do this? It's still in the London courts, by the way. 
um, I actually wrote to the finance minister of Azerbaijan. I said, this just doesn't make any sense. Conditional on your writing off creditors, you should at least get some debt relief for doing it. Um, but to your point, all you can do is file these away and understand what's happened in the past and make some educated judgment about how likely the current administration or dictator or whatever it is of the country is likely to do that in the future. That's an art. Like I said, the the credit research people on my team have a very hard job. Sounds like they got some bad counsel at uh, Azerbaijan. That's kind of interesting. Let's go in the opposite direction. When you look around the world, where is there safe EM debt, and I'm assuming the safer the debt, perhaps the lower the potential alpha you're going to see from that? Is, is is that a fair way to look at this? You're asking about a cake and eating it too question? Yeah, pretty much, yeah. So earlier we talked about $14 trillion in negative yielding debt. Wow. So we ask ourselves, The purpose of holding a certain class of government debt, we used to refer to it as the anchor to windward portfolio, right, or the hell or high water portfolio, is to have ballast in your portfolio in the event that there's a severe equity market decline or risk assets have their own uh, decline, whatever that is. The cost of holding that debt right now in many of the major markets, whether it's, you know, bonds or oats or JGBs or so forth, is holding a negative yielding asset, right? It's an insurance premium almost. Mm -hmm. So the question is, is can you choose from the group of positive yielding EM uh, local markets on a currency hedged or unhedged basis in the event that you're willing to take some currency risk and you think it's well-priced, that has the defensive properties of these developed markets bonds but with positive yields. And the answer to that is, yes, there's a small clutch of these things. They are not EM countries for the most part. They're not the poor countries. They are the Taiwans and Koreas of the world. But those markets do present as relatively safe. Now, not safe from financial repression. None of us is safe from financial repression, but safe in an anchor to windward statistical sense. Really, really kind of interesting. What parts of the world are you excited about? Any any countries that you're looking at and thinking, wow, this is underpriced and there's a ton of upside here? Uh, I would say the thing that's glaring right now are the stressed and distressed um, emerging countries. So we're at a, a if you take out the the real wides of the pandemic, the difference between the high yield sub-piece of our uh, hard currency benchmark versus the investment grade one, it's at very, very wide levels, right? So not pandemic levels, but very wide levels, about 500 over investment grade. Within that subset, there are arbitrage-like positions that can be set up. And by that, what I mean is these are countries whose bond prices indicate a high likelihood of default. So can you insure the default case while holding on for the no default case? And in a handful of those of those countries, the answer to that is yes. And I think those make some of the most interesting opportunities. You, you want to name names? What, what countries uh, present those sort of opportunities? 
I would say Ivory Coast is one, Ghana is one, um, El Salvador is one. So there's some interesting ones. Huh, really interesting. You mentioned the response to the pandemic. How did various emerging market countries and and their governments respond to COVID and and the financial crisis where in in 08-09, was this really a developed world issue in terms of... uh, the great financial crisis, or did it impact EM significantly also? Well, both crises really are exogenous shocks from the perspective of the emerging markets, right? Unlike 1998, where we were the epicenter, let's say, in 2008, emerging markets were run over as bystanders, right? And I would say the whole world was run over as, uh, as part of covid So whenever you have these external crises that impinge upon the markets, there are some very well-established programs out there for the sovereigns in our markets to make sure it doesn't become a systemic crisis. So if you think about 2008, there was a very standard playbook already in place to help some of the weaker credits um, whose debt was sustainable in the medium term They just had a rollover problem, and the IMF was there to help them roll over their debts until market access was regained. Some of them, of course, their debt was not sustainable in the medium term, and so they elected to default. So Ecuador defaulted in 2008, for example. What what about the early 2010s when we saw a lot of Southern Europe running into problems? Uh, Do we really think about Greece as a emerging market, or is that more of a developed nation with a long history of credit problems? It's a great question. So earlier when I was trying to lay out the taxonomy of what's considered an emerging country from an investment perspective, Mm -hmm. I said it's usually lower middle income countries or countries that have defaulted, even if they're high income. And I would put Greece in that latter category. How, How did that Southern European crisis, and I remember 2011, 2012, 2013, it seemed like it was never going to end. How did that affect the rest of the universe? I don't want to use a dirty word like contains, but was that primarily focused in Europe, or did the the tremors from that radiate outwards to all the various emerging market debt? Well, as a, as a relative value construct, of course it would radiate out. I mean, if you're going to get paid 500 over boons for BTPs or Spanish government bonds, why on earth would you buy emerging markets debt? Right. Right? So, of course, our spreads widened in sympathy. And I used to say that, you know, if, if Spain defaults, right, if a, if a major developed markets government elects to default, the signaling for our markets will be very, very bad, right? Just think about how terrible that would be. Argentina would just default because they would say, well, if the Spanish aren't going to pay, we're not going to pay, even if they could pay. Right, Right. why bother? Um, But I thought one of the most interesting things, in 2010, Mexico issued its first century bond, 100-year bond. Right. And the Mexican Hacienda, the the debt capital markets group there, was very, very clever. And they figured out which investors would be most likely to dip their toes into this 100-year Mexican bond. And they offered it 
shockingly cheap to the Mexican curve for those of us brave enough to do it. And by the way, they issued it at a large original issue discount, which meant it had a lot of default protection relative to other Mexican bonds. It was nirvana of a bond for us. We bought as much of it as we could. We were the largest holder of this bond, even really? though we weren't a very large emerging debt asset manager. And we couldn't figure out, like, why, why would Mexico give us such a free lunch? It just doesn't make any sense. And our sovereign analyst came up with a theory, which I think is a reasonable one. He said, here's the thing. U.S. rates are low. Interest rates are low. So while the spread is very wide, the yield is one of the lowest that Mexico has ever issued at. And that's politically popular. On top of that, huh. it's politically popular to say we, Mexico, can borrow for 100 years while right. Spain is struggling. So a little bit of um, political populism and national pride allows them to offer this. And, and it's relatively inexpensive money for, for them, isn't it? That's right. That's right. That was our only Mexican holding for years until Brexit came along and a sterling version of that bond became shockingly cheap to it. So we got rid of all of our dollar bonds and bought sterling bonds. It's huh. just a relative value play. Hi, I'm Ron Kraszewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So, there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. So, from Azerbaijan to the Ivory Coast to Mexico to, to all around the world, it kind of raises an interesting question. So, you mentioned you had an analyst who covered... Mexican debt, uh, how do you analyze governments or companies, for that matter, that are halfway around the world and present a risk of all sorts of uh, upheaval, uh, politics, currency crises, defaults on EM debts? Do you have to have boots on the ground in each country, or can you do this you know, from afar? What, what do you lose not participating on the ground? In my opinion... This is more of a marketing question than an investing question. Huh, really interesting. Tell us more. So if, if you think through the process that I've just described where you load your chips, your alpha chips, on arbitrage-like things, where you don't even really care which country you're talking about, frankly, right? Mm-hmm. Then from that perspective, no, you don't need boots on the ground because you are emphasizing that activity and de-emphasizing what you think you know about any particular country. And so the country tilts that we remain with are mostly a function of whether or not there are arbitrage-like things to do in that country. You know, if I take 
Papua New Guinea or Tajikistan. There's there's nothing to do there. You either buy the one <laughs> bond they have or you don't. It's pure country selection. So we just right. don't bother, right? Yeah, so you're yeah. saying this is really a quantitative form of analytics and not a squishier qualitative approach. That's correct. Huh. That's correct. If you've marketed yourself as you know boots on the ground and we think we can get more information than other people, which, by the way... Regulation FD wasn't just for equities. It's for everybody. Everybody gets right. the same information at the same time, the same roadshows, the same everything. It's not That's like true even overseas? I mean, I, I would think that if you're issuing a bond in Ecuador, what the hell do you care about the SEC rules? Oh, these are SEC-registered bonds. Ah, <laughs> these are, so it Remember, does the market is Euroclear, U.S. law, U.K. law. The country is emerging. Gotcha. That's really so really this idea of the 90s where I go and find out the vote and I tell the U.S., you know, the worldwide J.P. Morgan sales force what the thing's going to be, that kind of inside knowledge, that doesn't exist anymore. Right, right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Um, two other questions about what's going on today. So inflation seems to be uh, the, the watchword in 2021, along with interest rates that seem to follow. Uh, these are popular subjects at, of at the moment. What do you make of inflation as a risk both to the rate regime we see and, and how does that impact emerging market debt? So inflation is a form of default where you don't have to declare it. Mm-hmm. Right? So... From everything I know about sovereigns when they get their backs against the wall and eventually have to make a political choice to default, it's a very, it's generally a very unpopular decision. And if you can, you want to, you know, conditional on being in that position, you want to heap the losses on foreigners, right? That's why it used to be that countries would default on their foreign currency debt because that's where the foreigners were. Right. Russia changed that calculus because they defaulted on local currency debt, which is where the foreigners were, and paid dollar debt, which is where the Russian oligarchs were. So once you're in that position, if you can use financial repression in the form of negative real interest rates, partially through higher inflation, right, then you can default slowly without having to make a political decision to say we're not going to pay. Huh. And that's how. that's why... In my opinion, you see shadow assets trying to pop up. So if all the developed markets are all using financial repression simultaneously, you can't escape. You can escape by going to emerging markets, but they're going to try and do the same thing. If you're China, you used to have a closed capital system. So it was very hard for people to say, mm, I don't like negative real interest rates here. I'm going to go buy you know, U.S. dollar bonds or something like that. It was hard for citizens to to change their currency. That's evolved a little bit, but it's still fairly hard. So you see people playing hope as a strategy. I would say cryptocurrency is hope as a strategy. Right. Right? I, don't, I, I know I'm a sitting duck for financial repression, so I'm going to hope that this other thing is better because there's nowhere else to escape. Do you want to define financial repression? I hear that phrase constantly, and I always get the sense people use it very differently. So what I mean by financial repression is a running down of debts by allowing the, the earnings, so 
So whether it's corporate earnings or personal earnings or government earnings to be inflated through the inflation process, while the debts that are owed, whether it's M0 in the form of your you know, banknote in your wallet or in your bank account, all the way out to your you know, U.S. 10-year bond yielding 140-something. If inflation is higher than that, then you're eroding the real value of those debts, which is somebody else's asset, right? And that's how you run down your debt GDP slowly over time. But you don't actually default. You don't, you don't fail to pay. You just fail to pay in real terms. Really quite quite interesting. So you have decades of experience looking at emerging markets. You've lived through economic, financial, credit crises, all manner of, of mayhem in these markets. Uh, what have you learned uh, about these type of situations over the course of your career? What, what's your big takeaway here? Well, you've probably read Tolstoy. So College, you know, sure. The idea that every family is unhappy in its own way. Every crisis is unhappy in its own way, right? There are elements that may be the same, but each one is slightly different. And an early book that was given to me when I started, well, there were two books when I started in the emerging debt markets about the relationship between creditors and debtors and what happens when they get into crisis. One is called Banks, Borrowers, and the Establishment, which um, it's a great book. And the other one is called Debt Games. And in Debt Games, they look through all the crises up until the moment that book was written, and they use a game-theoretic approach to the strategic game of creditors and debtors as they head into a failure-to-pay moment. And so you can try and conceptualize things that way and say, okay, what are the facts that we have or the known unknowns about this particular situation and how does it line up with our past experience? But again, there's still some unknown unknowns every time you do that. So you just have to be humble about what is really knowable in any given situation. So so I see debt games. Um, that's uh, Vinod Agrawal, debt game, strategic international interaction in international debt rescheduling. Is that the book you're referring to? Yes. And what was the other book? I'm sorry, I missed it. It's called Banks, Borrowers, and the Establishment. It's, I want to say... Oh, I found it. All right. Here it is. Got it. It was, uh, I was, uh, it's Banks, Borrowers, and the Establishment, a revisionist account of the international debt crisis. Is that it? Yes. Huh. 1993. Quite interesting. Um, So go on. I'm sorry to have interrupted you about that. I just wanted to track these because they sound intriguing. Yeah, no, they're super. It's it's mostly about how to take these strategic interactions and map them onto the utility functions of the people involved, right? So my utility function as an investor on behalf of, you know, endowments and pensions and foundations or whatever is to maximize alpha relative to my benchmark. That's I have a very, very transparent utility function. Right. The the borrower, right, let's say it's a government borrower, may not be so transparent and their utility function can shift quickly over time. And so just thinking about how that evolves and trying to make some guesses. And by the way, 
this administration might get voted out of office over the term of the debt of the bonds that you own. (laughs) And so, you know, your opinion is only good so long as so-and-so is in office. You know, a great example of that was Ecuador earlier this year, where you vote in the new guy, and the new guy is more investor-friendly, and the bonds go up 60%. So, you know, that's, that's that's a pretty big change. So you, you've seen a lot over the course of your career. I'm going to throw you a curveball now and ask, in 2002, you leave J.P. Morgan to train for a spot on the U.S. national rowing team to compete at the Olympics in Athens in '04. Tell us about that, what motivated it. I'm going to assume you weren't just going to Athens to check out their debt. What what got you involved in in crew and, and rowing? Yeah, so after I moved back from Brazil in 1997, I took over a pretty big job at J.P. Morgan, and it was right as the Asian financial crisis came. And that was a hellish period for about 18 months through Russia's default, and I just burned out a lot. And one of my clients, who was a prop trader at Bankers Trust, said... I think you need to take up a sport. You know, you work all the time. Right. <laughs> I said, well, I live in Manhattan. I live in a village. What am I, like, what sport am I going to take up? He says, why don't you take up rowing? Nobody needs you at four in the morning. And so I bought a car. I joined a rowing club. I loved it. <laughs> I got more serious. I transferred to the New York Athletic Club and had a great coach there who watched an evolution that was very subtle and this is partially a story of J.P. Morgan. So J.P. Morgan had an extremely special culture. I, it's hard to describe until it was gone, right? That was the only job I'd ever had. Right. But Chase bought J.P. Morgan in 1999. Right. And that culture fell apart. And so my coach, who was watching me get faster and faster, simultaneously saw me not love my job anymore. He's like, you used to be first off the water, jump in your little car, get to your job, be at your desk at seven in the morning. Now I see you hang out, you have breakfast with the team. What's going on? And I said, I don't love my job anymore. And he says, you're so talented. Why don't you quit your job then and try and train for Athens? And so I said, you know what? You're right. (laughs) And I did. (laughs) And this was the woman's double event, which is really a challenging event, isn't it? Well, this is the women's lightweight double, yeah. So in Olympic women's rowing, if you're an open weight, there's the single, the double, the four, the quad, and the eight. In lightweight rowing, there's the double. So you're either number one and two in the country or you're not. Wow. So, and plus it's a lot of dieting. You had to weigh a very small amount. It was really intense to do. And my coach, you know, when I showed up for practice the next day, and I said, I quit my job, Vinny, I'm ready to go. He says, all right, now you have to move to Boston because that's where all the lightweight rowers are. I couldn't <laughs> believe it. I was like, what? I thought I was going to row for you. He says, no, you're rowing for Athens. So you moved to Boston. So, wow. Okay. That's amazing. So, I did. <laughs> so that's what led you to Boston. And, and I guess ultimately to GMO. Yep. Yep. I, I mean, I, didn't make the team and I was very despondent about that but I did meet a guy who's now my wonderful and long-suffering husband and I said I'm not moving back to New York so then I thought what am I going to do so I called up GMO and said hey you remember me they're like yeah I remember you said I need a job they said okay did they ask what have you been doing for the past two years since you left JPM 
They did. And fortunately, the head of the team at the time himself is really big into sports. We still follow each other on Strava now that he's retired. And so most of my interview with him was about my power to weight ratio. <laughs> I'm not kidding. That's amazing. That's really that's really amazing. So uh, how how competitive were you in the women's lightweight doubles? Did how close did you come to actually going to Athens? Because that's supposed to be an incredibly competitive slot. So in 2003, which is the year leading up where they're going to decide the likely national teams the following year. We came in second at trials. Wow. And now, interestingly enough, I, I still row every day. And on the weekends, we have a house at the Cape, and I've started rowing down there. And one of the guys I now row with is the coach of the other women's double. And I remember the first day that I showed up, I was so nervous. I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to meet Jim Dietz. And I, you know, I said, hi, Mr. Dietz. And he says, Vandersteel. You wrote against, you know, Stacy. I'm like, yes. He's like, you could, you did a good job. That's nice. <laughs> I was so pleased. And then <laughs> this year at the head of the Charles, we raced, my partner and I raced against a couple of the open weight women from Athens, um, Hillary and Marion. We just lost. So it's fun to still race these women all of these years later. Of course, we have kids and jobs and other stuff going on. What, what do you work out on at home? Are you using... A, a rowing machine, or you're not in the water every day, certainly not this time of year? Uh, we were out on Saturday and Sunday. This morning, I have a group called the Early Birds. It's all of these fabulous women. Um, and at 525, the race starts. So you just wow. hit the FaceTime. Whoever shows up today, it was Sam and Alex. And you know, we had a workout we'd agreed to yesterday. Normally, we would do it at the rowing club on the rowing machines, but right now with COVID, we just do it over the FaceTime. Uh-huh. And what I, machine? I you... wouldn't get out of bed without these women, by the way. Is They're this any particular machine, or are you? How, how are you actually doing this? I The reason I ask is I have a hydro, which oh, I, nice. I, I kind of get very lax when the weather's nice and I'd rather be outside. But around this time of year, it's like, okay, it's time to start. And uh, I'm I'm just about ready to to mid December, just about ready to say, all right, no more goofing around. Let let's hit the machine. Well, that looks like a very very spiffy machine. I've seen not only have I seen the uh, advertisement for it, but the people who do the videos. Yeah, they're great. They're out on the Charles all the yes. time, so we see them yep. go by. That's funny. Um, but we, we row on Concept Twos, which are just the basic equipment. Well, you know, when- I learned recently that one of the women from back in the day, this woman Katrine, is working on an improvement to what we have going, which is just literally FaceTime. So we're, you know, got video chat going on, but we can't see each other's monitors as though we were all there together. So she's working on an enhancement where it'll be FaceTime plus your ability to see other people's scores. Right. Which really gets your juices going, you know. That's the secret sauce of Peloton and other. Yeah you know, competitive um, machines like Hydro, and I'm sure there's a Nordic Trek has something similar. Um, at a certain point, it just, you know, becomes, I just want a little peace and quiet, and the videos are, are very, it, it's a relaxing workout, even if you work out work up a sweat, um, you're much more competitive in that space. So so I, I don't dare, uh, but it sounds like it's really fascinating. It's amazing you've stayed with it all these times. 
I know it's amazing you stayed with it all this time. I know I only, speaking of time, I know I only have you for a, a few more moments. Let's jump to our favorite questions that we ask all of our guests, starting with, tell us what you're streaming these days. What, what have been keeping you entertained, you and the family entertained during uh, the lockdown? Well, my two teenage daughters clued me in the other day. They said, Mom, you haven't opened your Spotify wrapped yet. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if you know what that is, but that's where Spotify tells you what you most listen to. Huh. So it's perfect timing. Um, so according to Spotify, what I most listen to is Eminem, Jay-Z, NF, and Rihanna. <laughs> so these are all think- upbeat workout music upbeat workout stuff yeah i I listen to a lot of the 180 beat per minute running workout stuff Mm -hmm. so that's my hypothesis where that comes from um in terms of watching stuff the girls have gotten us into a show it's i don't even think it's on netflix i think it's on youtube called the try guys so it's these four hilarious guys who are on a cooking show where they're not allowed to use any recipes and they just make (laughs) stuff up so it's very very funny we laugh a lot about that The Try Guys. All right. I see this on YouTube. That does look amusing. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial Advisors, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. Imagine having the resources of the largest wirehouses and the support of the boutique shops, but none of the bureaucracy to get in the way of you serving your clients. At Stiefel, it's your business, your book, your clients. I always tell the advisors we're recruiting, I want you to come to Stiefel and double or triple your business. Most of them laugh and shake their heads, but I'm serious. Don't take it from me. Take it from Stiefel's number one finish in J.D. Power's 2023 U.S. Financial Advisor Satisfaction Study. So there's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Um, Tell us about your early mentors who helped to shape your career. Well, um, certainly my parents, my older half-brothers and sisters, um, they're much, much older than I am. And, you know, they they had interesting careers that I learned about growing up. Uh, I would say my high school math teacher, one of my college journalism professors who was at my wedding. I'm still very good friends with. Um, at J.P. Morgan, my God, there would be too many to mention. There, was, The place was just teeming with unbelievable people. But one really uh, comes to mind is fellow Mike Sembalist, who still works there. Um, he ha- he taught me all about relative value. He was there. He you know watched the GMO versus long-term uh, outcomes. He was the person who suggested I go to Brazil. You know, he said, listen, this relative value work is really interesting and we all really like it, but you're not going to win any II awards or get paid much for doing it. You need to be one of these strategists. You need to, you need to be a person who can talk about the country. And so he said, just take the job in Brazil. I, didn't, I couldn't speak Portuguese. I didn't know anything about Brazil. He's like, ah, it'll be fine. And it was so fine. Huh. Um, Interesting. Let, let's talk about books. You mentioned two. What are some of your favorite? What, do, what are you reading currently? So um, when I thought about what books do I most love, I thought of it more in a desert island books. So 
So you're stranded on a desert island. You can only bring so many books with you. And if that were the case, the ones that come to mind top are uh, Thoreau's Pillars of Hercules mm-hmm. or Odonchi's Running in the Family or The English Patient. Um, I love Anne Patchett. She wrote Bel Canto and Patron Saint of Liars. And then I think I would always need to have a copy of Hofstetter's Godel Escher Bach, which <laughs> keeps your mind sharp. Um, I'm looking at a copy of that right now. That was a college book that I keep swearing I'm going to reread, and I have yet to honor that promise. It's it's a great book, right? It is, it was yeah. written by my, one of my research assistants, J.P. Morgan's mom's boyfriend. Huh. Interesting. Um, Any other books yeah. you want to mention, or I didn't want to cut you off? Yeah, no, after that, like, you know, the usual reading stuff. I like to read literature. I love Barnes, McEwen, that kind of stuff. Hmm. Sounds, sounds like that's a uh, quite a great list. What sort of advice would you give to a recent college grad who is interested in a career in either fixed income or emerging market? Well, definitely try and get yourself a job at one of the big banks and go through the training program experience. I mean, you get a free MBA, you get to rotate around and figure out what you like, because I think it's very hard to imagine what you're going to like without actually doing it, right? Um, After that, I would say think very, very carefully about cultural fit. I didn't know that that mattered so much, like I said, until it was gone. Hmm. So if, you, if you're not feeling it, move on. Huh. Really interesting. And our final question, what do you know about the world of investing today, be it emerging market debt, uh, hedge funds, large corporate um, investing strategies that you wish you knew 30 years or so ago when you were first getting started? Hmm. Well, I would say in line with the the last question, you got to try stuff, right? I think it's hard for me to say, what do I wish that I had known? I think you got to try stuff, fail, try again. That's how you learn. And I can tell you to avoid mistakes, but until you make them yourself, it's going to be really difficult. I remember considering going to get a PhD, actually, while I was at J.P. Morgan, thinking, oh, that would be something useful to have. And I went out to Stanford and met with the person who I thought I wanted to study under, and I explained the use case, like, why do I want to have this PhD? And I explained to him what I did for a living. He says, you don't need this PhD to do what you're doing for a living. If that's your use case, forget it. You are a practitioner already. So um, I'm not sure that I would have known that without actually practicing it. Huh, that's really kind of intriguing. We've been speaking to Tina Vandersteel. She is the head of emerging country debt at GMO, where she is also a partner. If you enjoy this conversation, check out any of our previous 377 discussions we've had. You can find those at iTunes, Spotify, wherever you buy your favorite podcasts. We love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. Write to us at MIB podcast at Bloomberg.net. Sign up for my daily reads at Ritholtz.com. Follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. 
I would be remiss if I did not thank the crack team that helps me put together this conversation each week. Mohamed Ramawi is my audio engineer. Paris Wald is my producer. Michael Batnick is my head of research. Atika Valbron is our project manager. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters of Business on Bloomberg Radio. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.